tell you, I'm so thankful to the Lord for the Gideon ministry. Uh, as, as many of you know, I grew up in that ministry. My dad was a Gideon from the time he was 40 uh, until he died at 90. And so that's, uh, if you do the math, that's pretty much like 50 years. And uh, I have seen the faithfulness of these uh, Christian uh, men and women in business, in the professions, effectively use God's Word as just as vessels. And uh, it's always exciting to see what God does. So we will be having a retiral offering at those four doors, uh, uh, two in the middle, uh, two on I, one on either side. Um, and uh, that, that entirety of that offering will go to the Gideons. We uh, uh, deeply appreciate that ministry. And wow, Dan, thanks for your story, my brother. And it's good to have your wife, Tammy, with you too. Um, I'd invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Verse 1. Let's pray together. Lord, now as we open your word, this is your truth. Your word is truth. And we ask that your spirit would teach us that truth and that we would rejoice and be encouraged by what we find there. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans 1, verse 1. Paul, bondservant of Christ Jesus. Now look down to verse 7. To all, Paul, to all. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then look down for the theme of the book of Romans to verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it stands written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. In chapters 1 through 5, we were taught about justification by grace through faith being declared righteous by God's action. Not made righteous, not becoming righteous, declared righteous by grace. And then chapters 6 through 8 describe more the doctrine of sanctification, of becoming more who God has called us to be, motivating us to become who we now are in Christ, and that will happens only through the Spirit. So chapters 1 through 5, justification. Chapters 6 through 8, sanctification. Chapters 9 through 11 describes the power of God, the sovereignty of God, and vindication of the consistency of God's plan through the Old Testament. He'd already talked about the gospel to the Jews first. And, and God's sovereign plan will take place. It will be fulfilled. So we have justification, sanctification, vindication, and then chapter 12, Verse 1, by the mercies of God, we've been beseeched, right? To be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we would become living sacrifices. The, the Old Testament sacrifices were dead. Living sacrifices. So here we have the so what part of the book of Romans, the application part of this book. How should we live? This is what transformed living looks like in chapters 12 through 15. So Paul, 
to all. And then turn with me to chapter 15. Chapter 15. Verse 13. Now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's it. That's the argument of the book of Romans. And this section, Paul to all, ending in this benediction and hope by the, Holy, by the power of the Holy Spirit, those are the bookends of the argument of the book of Romans. Um, so Paul closes this letter with that benediction. Uh, closes the argument with that benediction. Now, the argument's complete. But, now he begins to close the letter. And he starts at verse 14. And concerning you, my brethren. So, I was, I, I was thinking about this. I was just looking at these last two chapters. Half of chapter 15, then chapter 16. I was looking at that and thinking, you know, this looks exactly like what you would find in a missionary conference. It's a missionary update. It is a, a report. This past February, I was uh, the speaker at a missions conference in Miami. And I know, I know, I know, February, Miami. Yeah, I got teased mercilessly by the elders uh, who approved that trip uh, for preaching a conference in Miami in February. It was rough. But the, but the conference included study of the Word, which was my role for five sessions, uh, reports from the field, updates from different missionaries. All of their missionaries from all over the globe came in for this conference. Uh, travelogue, travel plans, uh, and they shared their prayer requests. Everything that was listed on the conference bulletin of that missions conference you see included in these last two chapters in Romans. A missions report from the front lines. In fact, if you take your bulletin, I put some notes in there, and there's some bullet points where you can just see how it, how it unfolds. In chapter 15, 14 through 33, the end of that chapter, Paul reports on his missions activities, including his plans to see them on his way to Spain. In chapter 16, verses 1 to 16, he greets the fellow missionaries in their congregations. And if you look down those verses, the most common word that you see is greet, 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 greet. In verses 17 through 20, he offers a warning about some human minefields, some obstacles on the mission field. And in fact, if you look at uh, uh, verse 17, now I urge you, brethren, keep an eye on those who cause dissensions. So he, he explains that, gives that warning about those individuals. In verses 21 to 24, he conveys greetings from fellow workers who are with him in Corinth, which is where he was as he wrote Romans, and there are eight individuals who greet them. And then in verses 25 through 27, he closes the book of Romans, this epistle to the Romans, with a doxology. These verses in chapters 15 and 16 are the first and the absolute best missions update you'll ever see. And the first section of this, verses 14 through 33, the rest of chapter 15, is what we are covering today. And it also includes the longest explanation that Paul gives about his life's work 
with the Gentiles. At the same time, it is a testimony to the radical change that the gospel made in Paul's own life. This man was a Jew of all Jews. Remember the attitude that the Jews had towards the Samaritans? We read about it in John chapter 4. For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. The Samaritans were half Jew, half Gentile. The Gentiles were worse. They were not Jewish at all. In fact, the Jews in the first century had a four-syllable term to describe them. Gentile dogs. That's four syllables right there. Gentile dogs, and then you have to add the last part of it. That was what they did. But now, and even as Paul wrote in Galatians 3, there is no Jew nor Greek. We're all one in Christ. Here's what I want us to take away from this passage. Is that's the, as we look at the big picture of this, Paul, in his missions update, lays out a strategic plan going forward. This is what my plans are. We make our plans. But even as we plan and as we pray about those plans and about our future, even as we have in our minds the way we think that those plans should unfold, God is in control. Our plans, not may, but most probably will be changed. And as we choose to adapt to those changes, that process drives us deeper in our walk with God because He's the one who does not change. He's the only rock in our shifting lives. There used to be an old, old saying, man proposes, God disposes. And then there's a snarky update. You want to hear God laugh, tell Him your plans. Well, God is the only rock when our plans do change, on which we anchor our shifting lives. So, now, if you're in Romans 15, verse 14, after his benediction, in verse 13, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. He begins by making some personal observations that are almost conversational. You can put yourself in the situation. Have you ever been in a conversation where, with a friend where you need to explain why you said what you just said to them. Because what you just said to them may be taken by them to be confrontational, but you didn't mean it that way. You meant it to be instructive. You had to say something hard to them, but you're saying it to people that you love and respect, and you want them to take it the right way. You know what I'm talking about? Does that make sense? So you want your friends to choose not to take offense. It's kind of like a doctor who is your friend, who gives you strong advice, but it's for your good, and you know that. That's kind of what we have here. Paul writes to them boldly because of his calling from God, but he wants them, for their eternal good, to go even deeper. So, verse 14, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to also admonish one another. This is not empty flattery. He has heard about these fully functional, mature churches. And by the way, we're going to see in chapter 16, he has a lot of friends there. We'll meet them there. But he, and he, he says they're doing well. But his role in this letter is to instruct even further. And you see this 
in chapter 6, verse 3, and verse 16, do you not know? Do you not know? In chapter 11, verse 25, where they were ignorant of God's plan towards the Jews. So he says in verse 15, I have written to you very boldly on some points so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given to me from God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus through the Trinity unfolding, God the Father, minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest of the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may, be, may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. There's the third member of the Trinity. In fact, you see that in the verses to follow. Look at verse 17. Therefore, in Christ Jesus... I have found reason for boasting in the things pertaining to God, God the Father. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ, God the Son, has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, there's the Holy Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ." Now, I'm going, to re- I'm going to come back to some points in these verses later. But for now, just look at where he ends up. I mean, Paul's frequent traveler miles must have been pretty astonishing. He had already traveled through Syria, Cilicia, all the way across Asia Minor, across the Aegean Sea and to Greece. And the end of that geographical arc is Illyricum. Illyricum was on the other side of northern Macedonia. It was across from northern Italy. Illyricum is modern Albania. So that's where he's already gotten to. He had, he, Paul visited more places than are recorded in the book of Acts. Uh, probably he visited Illyricum while he was in Corinth for two years. Here's his goal. Look at verse 20. Thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. As one person put it, he was boldly going where no apostle had gone before. He aspired to do this. That's a great word in the Greek language. It, It describes someone's life's goal. I don't know what your life goal is, for most people, it's to be comfortable and have a happy life. Paul's, life's, Paul's life goal was to preach the gospel to those who had not heard. Hold your place here. Let's look back to chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. After saying in verse 9, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then verse 11 says, For the Scripture says, Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. Look at verse 13. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he moves into this logical chain. Verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him of whom they have not heard? Then he backs up one more. How will they hear without a preacher? And then he backs up one more. How will they preach unless they are sent? And then he ends up in verse 16. Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? He actually is going to get back to that in chapter 15. So we'll hold, put pause on that for just a moment. But why does Paul have this passion? Well, he tells us in verse 21. But as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see. 
and they who have not heard shall understand. Now, there are many things that we can talk about from this cluster of verses that are embedded here. I want to point out just three. I've already mentioned the Trinity, as we see in verse, especially verses 15 through 19. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit is the cause for Paul's ministry. It's the goal of Paul's ministry. It's the empowerment of Paul's ministry. The, 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 God the Father sent the Son, where? To the mission field, planet Earth. And the Son was to die on the mission field for our sins. And the Spirit woos our hearts with the gospel and then seals forever those who respond. The Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, looks at you who have responded in faith to Jesus Christ, to the gospel message, and says, Mine! You have been sealed until the day of redemption. That's why he says in verse 17, In Christ Jesus I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God, for I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. And it, what, what has been accomplished through him is the work of God. He didn't do it. God did it. Listen to the report that Paul gives at the close of the first missionary journey. I'm going to be reading from Acts 14, verse 27. But just listen to these words. Just one verse. When they had arrived and gathered the church together, listen to this. They began to report all the things not that they had done. Listen, all the things that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. All the things that God had done and that he had opened that door of faith. How can Paul say that he boasts in these things? It's because he was merely the vessel. And a vessel is someone who is filled with contents more valuable than himself. He was filled with the content of the gospel. And Christ did the work. Listen, Paul had things that by any criteria of success or maybe by failure criteria... You, there were some things you would say, well, that was a success and that was a failure. And how do we evaluate that? Oh, well, the numbers of people who responded. That's not a spiritual gauge of God's work, necessarily. Um, Paul was merely the vessel. When you have spiritual success, when you're involved in ministering in this community, and you have what you think is spiritual success, don't you rejoice in knowing that that's what God did in their life, not what you did? Because if it depended upon you, oh, that would be horrible. If it depended upon me, one of the things that frees up me and Lewis and BJ and Damon and Ruby, all those who are engaged in various aspects of the ministry here, all one of the things that frees up all the elders and the deacons and the WMC is that this is God's work, not ours. doesn't depend upon us. Um, I can't save anybody. Only God can. 
there are two paintings out in the foyer. Church motto, to know Christ and to make him known, one of the paintings is of the prodigal son, to know Christ. The other is of the good Samaritan, to make him known. Beautiful paintings. Um, they were done by my son-in-law. I didn't know that that was happening. They, we were, Betsy and I were surprised about that, with that. But um, let, let's say that one of the paintbrushes that Steve used could talk. Okay. Here we go. Let's say that this paintbrush could talk. What would this paintbrush say? Would the paintbrush say something like this? See that painting out there? I did that. That's my work. I'm so proud of what I did. Yeah, it was hard. Got a little stiff from time to time. Lost some hair. But I did that. That's my work. No. We're the vessel. It's God's work. So, what this means for me and Lewis, especially as we proclaim God's word from the pulpit, is that we are freed from human definitions of success. <laughs> Instead, it's I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. This, there's amazing freedom here. And many of you who are, are engaged in serving where the Lord has planted you in ways where you do not see tangible fruit, but we don't know what fruit is being produced, God does. And we aren't producing the fruit, God is. There's an old story about Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers from the last century. He was talking with one of his critics. They were on the street. And uh, they passed by a man who was clearly drunk. But this man was known to them, and he had made a profession of faith in one of Spurgeon's meetings. And, Spur and the critic said to Spurgeon, Well, Spurgeon, there goes one of your converts. To which Spurgeon replied, Yes, that looks like one of my converts. We don't convert anyone. That's the work of God. I love verses 17 and 18. Paul's deeply aware that any eternal impact is, from, is up to God. We just show up in order to be faithful. That's all of us, where God has called us to serve. I want you to also look at how Paul describes his ministry in verse 16 as an offering to God. In Paul's mind, he carries out his ministry to the Gentiles as an offering to God. And he says in verse 16 that it would be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Gentiles, now sanctified, that is declared holy, not in themselves by God's, but by God's grace. No Jew ever imagined that. No Gentile ever imagined that. Paul never imagined that. And, and he's, it's, it's as though he backs off from his ministry and he looks at it, and his jaw just drops. Look at what God has done. And he wants to add to that offering of saved Gentiles 
by continuing to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, just as God had called him to do, again, verse 20, not where Christ was already named, so that I will not build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see. They who have not heard shall understand. And you have to see where Paul is quoting from. Look in your Bibles. Often they'll give you a side reference to tell you where the Old Testament quote is taken from. And it's easy to look at this, read the text, and pass on, say, oh, how nice, he quotes an Old Testament scripture. But texts bring their context with them. And where is Paul quoting from? Have you found it? Where? Isaiah 52. Let's turn there. Hold your place here and turn to Isaiah 52. Oh, I see it. Isaiah 52, last part of verse 15. For what, they had not, for what had not been told them, they will understand. What they had not heard, uh, they will see, rather. What they had not heard, they will understand. Okay, there's, there's the quote. There it is. But if you are ever wondering, who has believed my testimony? Who has believed our report does anyone really understand? Is, is anyone really listening? Well, this passage is an explanation of God's eternal plan of salvation to the nations, the individuals to whom, uh, the, the, the nations to whom Paul is, is, is proclaiming the gospel. Look at verse 13 of chapter 52. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up. Same words as in Isaiah 6.1 of God the Father. High and lifted up. The servant is in the place of God. He is greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people. So his appearance was marred more than any man. His form more than the sons of men. They will sprinkle the many. Thus he will sprinkle many Nations. This was a reference to the dipping of, of, the, of the, the branch in the, in the blood and sprinkling the nations uh, after they were purified through the sacrifice. He will sprinkle many nations, that is, with his blood. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. What they had not heard, they will understand. And, and as Paul continued in his missionary travels, I wonder if he thought about the next verses. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This little phrase, the arm of the Lord, what does that refer to? Well, if you look back up in chapter 52, verse 10, the Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. Thus all the ends of the earth may see, what? The salvation of the Lord. The arm of the Lord, the salvation. To whom has that arm, that salvation been revealed? And then from that point on to the end of Isaiah 53, he describes in detail the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's where Paul quotes from as he is going to the Gentiles. But this whole passage is in the context of preaching the good news to the nations. 
not just to the Jews, but to the nations. So you can say amen to that. This is just really good, good stuff here. And then in verses 22 and following, uh, Paul, that, so that's, that's Paul's why. Now in verses 22 and following, you see his plans. And verses 22 through 29 are not hard. He explains his past plans. He lays out his future plans, and then he describes his present plans. He's a planner, Paul. Uh, I've worked with, I think, three organizations on strategic planning, planning, five-year plans, 10-year plans, 20-year plans. Having a plan is a good thing, but it's never a straitjacket. Things change, and you have to hold those plans loosely. As Christians, every plan we make is conditioned by the two letters DV. Ever looked, ever noticed on the back of your bulletin, the very back of the bulletin? It says, plans for this week, and then the next line says, and beyond, comma, DV. Ever looked at that and thought, what does that mean? Why is that there? It's the Latin words, Deo Valente, God willing. Plans for beyond. This is exactly what James says in James 4. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. You do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, Latin, Deo Valente. We will live and also do this or that. So every plan that we make is in submission as Christians to the Lordship of Christ. And and the perfect example is Paul's past plan. Look at verse 22. For this reason I had often been prevented in coming to you. Not sure what prevented him from coming. How many times he made plans to come. But every time he made plans to come to Rome, God said no. He'd experienced that before. You remember on the second missionary journey... Paul and Silas were going through Asia Minor, and, and they tried to go north, and the Spirit prevented them. They tried to go south, and the Spirit prevented them, and they just kept on going to the west. They ended up at a town called Troas, and there they had the vision of the man from Macedonia who said to come over to Europe, to Macedonia, and help us. So God did not unveil his plans to Paul back when he was in Antioch. God unveiled his plans after Paul, after he'd experienced the no, 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 yes, no, and ended up over at Troas. In his time, God didn't reveal them earlier. So God made his plans to see the Romans in the past, but Paul's plans, I'm sorry, Paul made his plans, but Paul's plans were changed. So here, is a few, here are his future plans, verse 23. But now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you, whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing, to be helped on my way there by you, when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. This is, these are his future plans. And, and, and um, this one verse, verse 24, may announce, maybe the announcement of a seismic shift in missions, in Paul's plans. In Acts, the gospel spread from Jerusalem as a base in Acts 1 through 12 to Antioch. And then from Antioch 
as a base from 13 to 28 over to Rome. So, Antioch was the base for spreading the gospel all the way to Rome. Rome would become the base for spreading the gospel to the rest of the West. Paul is thinking big. From Rome, he'd go to Spain, maybe north into France, across the British Channel into Britain, across the Irish Sea into Ireland, and so on and so on. Okay, Paul didn't get that far, but others did, and soon. But before that, those are his future. We've talked about his past plans, his future plans. Before that, he's got a present plan. And Paul did not know what we do know. His present plan will actually reroute his future plan. Maybe not derail it, but reroute his future plan. Paul was planning one more trip back to Jerusalem. In fact, it seems likely to me as I read this and the epistles that he never expected in his lifetime to return again to Israel after this visit. But he was going there this one time. Again, things did not go according to his present plan. Look at verse 25. But now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. And I'm not going to belabor this point, but this is foreign missions in reverse. This is where the mission churches support the mother church, not the other way around. The Jerusalem church, I believe, had beggared itself supporting those Hellenistic Jews after Pentecost who stayed and received the apostles' teaching. And then later on, so I think all their funds were just depleted. Then later on, a famine hit the region, so things got even worse for the Jerusalem region, and the resources were very scarce. From that point on, the Gentile missions churches sent funds to help the Jerusalem church. And you can read about this offering in 1 Corinthians 16 and in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. I'll just reference it here. But notice Paul's attitude in verse 27. Yes, they were pleased to do so, that is to make that offering. And they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles had shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. And in verse 28, Paul describes this offering, financial offering, as a seal of their spiritual fruit. And he's talking about more than charity. This offering symbolizes the reciprocal unity between Jews, uh, Jewish and Gentile believers as being one in Christ. So the Gentiles are sending this to the Jews. This is family giving. This is what family does. Therefore, verse 28, when I have finished this and, put, and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. And I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Paul's got big plans. To my knowledge, no one had ever laid out those plans before. Spain was the western limits of the Roman Empire. Did Paul make it there? No, we don't know. I think he may have. He did arrive in Rome, but instead of being weeks later, it was three years later. Instead of having a prosperous journey by way of you on to Spain, it was in chains. 
not his plan. His plan got rerouted. As Paul thinks about returning to Jerusalem, he asks them to pray for him. Why? And this may, may seem to be the opposite of what you'd expect, Paul, with all of his Jewish credentials. Paul was in little danger of being misunderstood by the Gentiles. He got them. They got him. It was good. But the Jews were a different matter. First, I mean, this Jew of all Jews has this prayer request from his Gentile brethren before his trip to Jerusalem. And, of course, that's before his trip to Rome, which is before his trip to Spain and beyond. Here's the prayer request. And it's exactly the kind of thing that you'd see in a missionary letter today. He knows when he enters Jerusalem, he's potentially entering uh, lynch territory. Uh, Mob rule. Jewish unbelievers hated him as a traitor, as an apostate heretic who now fraternized with Gentiles. And, And the idea that Paul expressed just a minute ago that the Gentiles were an offering to God from Paul. He was just amazed at what God did, and they were like an offering. That idea would have enraged the Jewish unbelievers even more. And not only that, the Jewish Christians were still skeptical of Paul, keeping him at a little bit of a distance. He had hurt so many of them as former persecutor. And forgiveness is real, but memories are long. So here's his prayer, verse 30. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. And by the way, earlier we saw the Trinity and his commission to the Gentiles. He now concludes this missionary update with a Trinitarian prayer. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, through the Spirit, to God the Father, First part of his prayer has to do with his reception in Jerusalem, specifically with the two groups. First of all, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea. That's the province that housed Jerusalem. And disobedient means disobeying the gospel. They are turning their backs on God. They're not hearing under the authority of God. He's referring to unbelievers. So I'll be rescued from the unbelievers who are Jewish. And secondly, that my service for Jerusalem and he's, he's, he's talking about the, the offering that he's bringing, may be acceptable to the saints. And you know, if those two things go well, kind of running the Jerusalem gauntlet, then Paul expects verse 32 to happen. So that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. May the God of peace be with you. Amen. With you all. Amen. I love the fact that in this benediction, of all the attributes of God, he includes the God of peace because that's what he wants. When he gets to Jerusalem, he wants the God of peace to hover over those plans. Well, those are Paul's plans. That's Paul's prayer. He anticipates a refreshing journey to Rome, a nice cruise on the agape boat. But his plans got changed. He went to Jerusalem to serve with the very best of motives, with the backing of the prayers of the Gentile churches. When he got to Jerusalem, the unbelieving Jews attacked him totally derailed his plan what did the christian jews do well i mean these were the people he went there to serve did they appreciate him did they flock to his aid frankly the christians at jerusalem did just about nothing 
at least we never see them present or uh, intervening in his behalf in any way that we're told about. The only ones who stuck their necks out for Paul were Aquila and Priscilla, and we'll see them in chapter 16. There are two big things I want us to take away from this segment of Scripture. And those two things have to do with our prayers and our plans. And those two things overlap. First of all, do our prayers, our fervent prayers, like Paul's prayers for the Jerusalem mission and his future mission to Rome and to Spain, do our prayers guarantee God's compliance with what we ask? A, yes, B, no. B, no. God is not a celestial vending machine. But God inhabits our prayers, and he answers them according to his will, but his answers come from the eternal perspective, from his plan, Deo Valente. God did answer Paul's prayer, but not in the way he asked it. Let's see what happened. You can turn with me now to Acts chapter 21. We're going to take a look at what happened. Just a couple of verses here. Well, a few. In Acts chapter 21, starting with verse 15. After these days, we got ready and started on our way up to Jerusalem. Verse 16. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Mnason of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to lodge. After we arrived at Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, and, and I would assume that that was where the offering was given. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James. All the elders were present. After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done, not that he had done, God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard about it, they began glorifying God and said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews. Uh, see, he would have been talking to them about what was happening among the Gentiles. How many thousands are among the Jews of those who have believed? And they're all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you're teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. Therefore, do this that we tell you. And they gave him a suggestion of, of an act of piety that he can do to sort of try to win over the Jews to show that he is not in opposed to the Old Testament truth of the law of God. So they give him that suggestion that he do that. And now look at verse 27. When uh, he's, he's, he's going to uh, involved in a seven-day prayer and, and uh, uh, act of purity, of uh, piety rather. Verse 27, when the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. That is the temple. And besides, he's even brought a Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city, not in the temple, in the city. And they supposed Paul brought him into the temple. Then all the city was provoked and the people rushed together, taking hold of Paul. They dragged him out of the temple. And immediately the doors were shut. While they were seeking to kill him, the report came to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. And anyway, the, the, what happened is the, the Roman commander came down, rescued Paul. But from this point on, from this point on, 
Paul was a Roman prisoner. Not exactly what Paul had planned. From this point on to the end of the book of Acts. He wanted to come to you in joy by the will of God, verse 32. And you know, actually, he did. It was by the will of God. Only God had other things to accomplish before he sent him to Rome. And if you want to read about the joy part, read Philippians, which he wrote after he got to Rome. In fact, we have the four prison epistles. Philemon, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians. While he was in Rome, imprisoned by God's providence. We have those books. So here's the understatement of the ages. God's plan is always greater than our plan. So the, I make my plans... They're always in submission to God's plan. And this is the second point. It's interesting. Paul says his past, in verse 22, his past plans were changed. We know, he doesn't, that his future plans will be changed. And we know from Acts 21 forward that even his present plans will be changed. So you want to say, okay, why make plans? <laughs> why, why do that? <laughs> well, we always, our plans are always contingent on Deo Valente. Here's Paul's ultimate plan. Our, our smaller plans are circumstances. But here's the greater plan in Philippians 1.20. That I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. That's the plan. That's the goal. His goal, whatever he was facing, including life or death, was to lift Christ up. God didn't derail his plan. He rerouted it, and he made it better. He made it eternal. And if nothing else, God used Paul's immediate plan of Spain so that he would write Romans. God knows what he's doing. Did, God, did Paul make it to Spain? As I mentioned, we, we're not sure. He was later released and then rearrested and executed and there is some evidence that he did make it to Spain. It's possible. I think God wants us to dream big dreams, plan big things. And whether those dreams become a reality in our lives, they do become, the process of them becomes a sanctifying part of God's work in our hearts. Never underestimate the sanctifying power of planning big things for Jesus' sake. Even the small steps glorify him. Nothing is wasted. When I began, I told you this. I don't know if you caught it or not. I told you this. I want you to see this. Paul lays out a strategic plan going forward. But even as we plan and pray about our future, even as we have in our minds the way that we think everything should unfold, God is in control. Our plans will be changed. And we choose, as we choose to adapt to those changes, we grow deeper in our walk with God. Because he's the one who does not change. He is the only rock in our shifting lives. Let's pray. As we go to the Lord in prayer, I just want to take a moment. Some of you are going through some of those seismic shifts, changes in your plans. Where you're being rerouted to something outside your control. Something that you did not plan. How will you respond to that? What is God going to do from that that is eternal? 
Lord, as Jesus prayed in the garden, not my will but thine be done. We thank you, Father, that you are the sovereign in control. We thank you, Lord, that you are the one to whom we look, on whom our lives are built, that you are our rock. Lord, I pray that our faith would be strong as we follow you and trust you to do your work in our lives. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a hymn book and turn with us to hymn number 493. And if you'll stand, we will sing together all.